listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participants, employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. All right, Stomping Jen. It's so weird listening to you talk. Why? You're not talking, and I look over at you, and you're not talking at all. I am talking. What do you mean? No, the disclaimer was talking. Oh, welcome to episode 86. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? We've made it 86 episodes. Only 14 away from quitting for good. Oh, my God. 100 is when we go out. Yeah? You think so? I think so. All right. Triple digits was my goal. So... I'm really excited. Uh, This week on episode 86, we have Jason Montgomery back with us from Attack Bear Press. He's the co-founder of Attack Bear Press. We're going to talk to him about a bunch of stuff going on in the world right now Mm -hmm. and whatever else we decide to venture into. Sounds great. Sound good? Yep. All right. All right. Here we go. All right. Soft Serve Podcast. Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. All right, Stomping Jen and Jason Montgomery. Episode 86 of the Soft Serve Podcast. Hello, Jason. Hello, hello. How are you? We are doing okay. At least I am. How are you doing, Stomping Jen? We're good. We're tired. Stressed out. Been a long, stressful kind of couple of days, hasn't it? Week, week, week and a half, I would say. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I am kind of still reeling from our conversation last week mm-hmm. with Elena McCauley. God, that um, seems like so. It does. Long yeah. Ago. Director of Inclusion and Diversity at UMass Amherst. Mm-hmm. We talked about. Last week, um, a lot of the stuff that was going on in the news that was a little fresher, um, and we have Jason on this week to talk about uh, stuff that's happened since then and continue the conversation, I think, is what we wanted to do. So, um, welcome, Jason. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I I love being able to um, take off my art hat and put on my activism hat. Or and then put the art hat back on top of the activism hat because it's a hat on a hat. <laughs> and we're going to ask you to wear a couple of those hats today. So oh, good. we'll put them on and off, I think. Yes. Right, Stomping Jen? Yes. Yeah. And anything you want to tell us about Attack Bear Press, the organization you co-founded? Let's give it a little plug here and tell people what that is and what you do and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, Attack Bear Press is a um, arts collective. We started as an arts clearinghouse and kind of evolved into an arts collective. Um, our main focus um, is um, community arts and engagement, um, specifically around you know bringing arts, um, culture, and um, 
I would say like uh, an, a, a place of entrance um, to larger conversations here in Western Mass. We operate on kind of a weird model. Um, you know, we are dedicated to the idea of low cost or no cost community events. Um, we also have a couple other kind of footprints. Um, it's funny because people are always asking like, oh, Attack for Press, what do you publish? And we're like, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> um, but but we, we are publishing now. Um, we actually have a couple uh, books in the work right now um, that we're hoping to, to roll out in the next few weeks. Um, and then we do have a fine arts division um, and, you know, our studio space, which we're bringing online. Um, our studio space is at 380 Dwight Street in Holyoke, and we'll be bringing that online as soon as the world reopens to act as um, a community create space. Um, the idea behind it is based on uh, the Living Artist Project in New York um, in the 1960s and 70s as a open community space where artists can come and utilize, create, and um, then take out uh, work. Um, so the goal is that we have this space available so that no one ever has um I don't have room to do this. I can't create. We see artists as being like little cottage industries and little cottage businesses in themselves. And so like, we want to make sure that the person who's like, you know, I paint in my bathroom at home or I paint in my living room or garage, I can't possibly do a show has a space to come. Um, in part because we, we really believe in the idea of equity amongst like, um, in the arts realm and in part because it is an act of activism for us. Um, you know, we are an organization where two of our three founding members are people of color. Um, you know, all of our members, uh, subscribe to all of our founding members subscribe to some form of minority community. And so part of what we're trying to do, especially here in East Hampton, um, and in all of kind of Western mass is, um, is really, you know, for lack of a better word, like break down the tofu curtain that exists that mm -hmm. really keep specifically artists of color out mm -hmm. um, or not active or in, in some cases fetishized and tokenized in a way that we just can't agree with. And so... That's, that's what we do. We end up doing and wearing a lot of different hats. I mean, this, this last week, you know, we've had to kind of step up into a couple realms. Like you, we, we've been helping, um, Amara Brown, an artist out of whole, or out of, sorry, out of New Haven with her project, um, called the bailout, uh, gallery. And that was a, a gallery, uh, online gallery in which, um, artists donated work they were sold at, you know, gallery prices and then a hundred percent of the money was donated to various bailout funds. Okay. Um, you know, attack bear was a proud sponsor of that event, both fiscally to help with the website, get the website up and running. And then I, I personally served on the team to help get Western Massachusetts artists to, you know, donate work. So, you know, that we still have the second awareness, um, uh, workshops going out with Nicole Young, who these are workshops for people of color and other minority communities to come together and do self-exploration through writing. Um, so it's just, it seems like there's a myriad of stuff going on. Um, and all the poets who listen to your podcast, please submit to our, um, express that 
I can't say the word, but it's where you um, you look at a picture and write a poem about it. Um, uh, smart people can say it. Um, yep. So you can find. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, right. and I, I saw that advertised on the Attack Bear yeah. Press Facebook page. So you yeah. can go so check our, that out. Yeah, please go check it out. Submit. The first piece of art is from Isabella, uh, the founder of Survivor Arts Collective. So please, like, we're, we're always doing something. It feels like we're doing so many things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that that is exciting. So, you know, when, when your fine arts space in Holyoke opens up, do you do you already have a a full kind of slate of artists ready to to populate it? Are you still looking for um, people well, to come in? How does that process work? It, it's strange because you know right now I would have said two months ago I would have said yes. Like we when the door opens we would have people come through, but we've kind of like it's this weird like art supply chain where folks are like, well. I would have needed the space, but my show got canceled. Mm-hmm. So I can't like, there's no point in me producing a bunch of work and like putting a bunch of like effort forward. Um, so strangely, enough, headphones just died. I don't know if you can still hear yep, me. We can hear you. Yep. Oh no. So a little technical glitch. So I fell out of a chair. Last, um, yep. Yeah, la- I was gonna, I was gonna ask you if so, you um, found had, a new chair. My, sorry, I had earbuds in, and so the volume went down. Just, just stopped. I don't know if you heard anything I just said. Yeah, yeah we, we heard did everything. Everything. You reminded, okay, you reminded good. listeners on uh, on your last appearance that you fell out of a chair. Oh, excellent. <laughs> so, good. I'm, yeah. I'm glad everyone. I'm yeah. Glad everyone heard that. And um, I'm not cutting so, yeah, that out. Uh, like I was saying, we have a full like roster all ready to go. And now it seems like we, it's kind of hit or miss. Um, and there's just so much unknown. So we actually decided we've partnered with the building. We were, we were planning on rolling out a gallery space at the building um, in the second, uh, sorry, in the first quarter of next year. Um, and now, now we've decided to step that up so that we can actually get a gallery space going so that people have a space to come and show, show work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exciting. That's super cool. Well, you know, as, as you go along and when you get closer to being able to do that, we can definitely, um, put, put the word out through this venue and Mm -hmm. promote that. We appreciate that. Yeah. Let us know, um, for sure. All right, um, and people can find you on Twitter at Attack Bear Press and on Facebook. So um, yeah, and also on Instagram on and do. on the gram. Yep, and on the gram. Yeah. So people listening to this who reside outside of Western Massachusetts, I know there are lots of you. Please uh, check out um, Attack Bear Press. I think the stuff Jason and Attack Bear are doing kind of transcends in a lot of ways geography. So yeah, make sure you check it out. All right. So this Uh, has been a, we, we talked about this earlier. It's been a tough week, hasn't it? Stomping Jen. It's been a week, right? We've got, we've got COVID-19 going on. Yep. Even though the government thinks it's not happening. Yep. The government's ignoring it, continuing to Mm -hmm. ignore it. They, the state of Massachusetts where we record, this is beginning to, to open back up and we're dealing with all of that as many people across the nation are. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, 
the thing that's been at the the forefront of at least my consciousness, and I, I know you've been dealing with this stomping, Jen, um, yep. in various ways, and Jason, you too, are the oh, yeah. continuing um, protests and conscience raising around Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and we we talked a little bit about how last week we talked to Elena McCauley, um, and Stomping Jen and I were attempting to have a conversation around some of these issues. I'm not sure. I, I you know, I, I've not had the courage to listen back to it <laughs> to see how I did. <laughs> um, you know, and so I, I still need to do that. Yeah. Maybe I can learn something from that. What do yeah. you think, Stomping Jen? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I've, I, I've been, I made a little post today because, you know, I've been thinking about this and it's, it's a hard it's a hard thing to speak about and you have to sort of lean into the uncomfortableness and we're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to just going to grow from those mistakes um, and learn and be open to listening and feedback and all different people's perspectives and experiences. And I think that's the only way that we can all get through this um, is by listening to each other, holding space for each other. Um, yeah. And really hearing yeah others yeah yeah i i i second that um you know for me i i i am a person of color i come from a a kind of mixed up family of color um and it's it's so strange that we've got some family stuff happening right now um that oddly kind of corresponds with with kind of everything out there that's really kind of been illuminating um at least as a person of color like how truly deeply these things run and how you know how all of us bear the weight of kind of this system of 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 racial discrimination of racism and how it really colors every part of our lives and right now is such an important time to, to kind of get uncomfortable, to get really uncomfortable (laughs) and kind of just, and, and I mean, and get down to it because I don't think we can take much more of, Mm -mm. of not dealing with this. So, yeah. And do you think, do you think we're, I mean, in so many ways, I feel like we've been here before, right? Um, oh, yeah. we, ha- we have, an, we know, we have another, um, person of color murdered mm-hmm. by, um, a police officer, right? A white police officer. And, you know, we have, um, conscience raising around that, um, you know, and I'm wondering though, something, I don't know, I feel like something feels different about this to me in so many ways. And I'm, I'm wondering if we're at a point where we're, you know, finally going to be able to, you know, acknowledge as as a, as a nation that, you know, black lives matter, you know, I don't know. Do you, do you have any thoughts, Jason, on, you know, does this have, does this have any legs? Can we get, can we really move the needle on this? So one of the things that like, I, I, I would like to start this by saying, like, I, I fully acknowledge 
that um, I hold quite a bit of light skin privilege. Um, and I, and I say that up front because it's, I think it's an important thing to acknowledge. Um, I come from a very dark skin family and being the lightest skin person in our family. I believe that like gives me a slightly different perspective, mm-hmm. but one thing, and I, and, and one thing for me, at least looking through, looking through all of this and looking is, and I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way of putting this is, is hearing from, and I'm just going to say it, I hearing from white people again and again and again about how this feels different, how this feels so much, how that like something is there and wanting to say to them this is no different than the myriad of times going back generations that this is happening Mm -hmm. you are just seeing it now right and i i brought up my light skin privilege because like it gives me a strange ability to kind of move through a different population than my than my familial population and to see people reacting to to kind of what is happening right now and and i'm speaking for in the white community um with with like the shock and disgust and this real like drive to action and there's this part of me that that truly hopes that that seeing it will will help move it forward but there's this other part of me that's like but we've heard this before yeah. we've mm-hmm. been here before yeah. like we we had like this is no different than you know i was in los angeles as as a you know teen during the la riots mm-hmm. like and this is no different than than that like this is no this is more widespread but this is exactly the same like you know i wasn't alive for like the chicano moratorium the the march against vietnam in which corky gonzalez was was murdered in in a bar and the police who did it walked away this is no different than than any number of killings that have happened through through multiple civil rights movements but it's being seen now and i guess in that way it feels very much like the advent of like television in the vietnam war that pushed you know a a nation towards like understanding the atrocities of that we seem to be understanding the atrocities of this because we're seeing it but like you know for me i don't know like i don't like i hate to hate to sound like this but like i i don't i don't trust i don't trust the white community to make the actual changes they need to make like I just I don't because we've been here too many times yeah. and I think that from communities of color there is this just frustration of like of and it comes from a lot of different directions of just being like can can we just like can we just not like mm-hmm. and I I found myself saying over and over and over again to people who are like you know, 
if we to to white allies who are like, well, if we just did this and that and this, we could solve this tomorrow. And it's like, then why didn't you do it yesterday? Right. Right. Then then what? Like, what is it about right now that you think there's a tomorrow? Like, you could have already done this. So, like, I don't know. Like, I hope so. I I I hope so because I'm tired of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, um. You know, my grandfather was an activist in his way in a, in a very different, in a very different way, um, because it was a very different era. Um, and, you know, survival was, was a matter of, of first priority, but, you know, it feels as though he's having, I'm having the same fights he had, like yeah. where it's just, right. can, yeah, you so I don't know. can you, can you tell us a little bit more about how he was an activist? I'm curious. Uh, so my so my grandfather um, started. <laughs> he, he and his family um, started in the mines in um, Arizona, in the silver mines in Arizona, and then they went to El Centro, California. Um, they were farm workers, um, you know, Chicano farm workers. Uh, they they were native Californian from Los Angeles, and they kind of made it to Arizona when there was jobs there and ended up in El Centro because there was agricultural jobs there. Um, he ended up going from that, um, to being the, um, first Chicano Hispanic person on the city council in El Centro, California, the first Chicano, um, Hispanic, um, mayor in the Imperial Valley, um, and the first Chicano to, to serve in a leadership position on the California Council of Cities. Um, he helped try in his way to bring um, the United Farm Workers into the Imperial Valley. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, but it, there's a myriad of reasons on why it didn't happen um, <laughs> yeah. that we can go into if you want to spend like six episodes just talking about farm labor organization in California. <laughs> I might, I might, um, I might want to, as a, <laughs> as a union co-president, I might take you up on that at some point. Oh yeah. It could be a, a fun conversation. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually I find it fascinating because like it is, it is exciting in the world's most boring way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, but um, yeah, so he, that was, you know, he fought for people on the East side, um, which is, it's funny because my grandparents are are kind of a, a mixed race couple in and of themselves. My grand my grandfather was definitely Hispanic, Chicano, Mexican American in the way that like he had never been to Mexico because California used to be Mexico. Right. Um, my grandmother, on the other hand, was native native uh, Native American and Cape Verdean. Um, and so, but my, it's such a weird family dynamic. And sorry, I'm bringing up my family. There's just, there's stuff like from the, the, my family finding out, um, members of my fa- family finding out where Cape Verde is. Um, apparently they didn't think it was Africa, which to me, <laughs> like, there's yeah. a, there's a long drawn out story of my, my grandfather coming to the, my grandfather Gomez, my, he, my great grandfather, um, Sorry, I, I refer to both my great-grandfather and my grandfather as grandfather, um, but for the, the, the sake of this conversation. So my great-grandfather, Gomez, came from uh, Fogo Island um, and actually landed in New Bedford and then found out he was Black, um, which to him was 
came as quite the quite the surprise because he um you know coming from africa didn't really understand what that meant in the context of the united states right um yeah and so um he quickly when he got to el when he eventually got to el centro and married my grandmother um started to pretend to be um portuguese from mexico um he actually stopped spelling his last name G-O-M-E-S and started spelling it G-O-M-E-Z so that he could say he was Mexican and not African because that's how bad it sucked to be African oh <laughs> in, when grandpa was alive. Um, wow. So anyway, I, I started rambling. Um, uh, my grandfather, Alicon, was the, the gentleman I was referring to at first. Um, and so it's just, it's strange to be kind of in that same place where it feels like not a lot has changed in trying to, you know, make headway for our people um, versus, you know, having to deal with kind of the, like, well, it's so like, I'm sorry, I'm rambling a little bit because it, it's weird. Like if you were to ask me before our current administration started, did I feel like racism was covert or overt? I would say most of the time it's covert. Now it feels very overt and it's, it's hard to kind of rationalize what's happened in these last three years yeah and 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 i hear you you know when you say from the perspective of a person of um color that you know not much is different at all right this mm-hmm. this feels very familiar mm-hmm. yeah. i think for me as a you know a, the white guy in the room right what feels very different to me and going to your point jason is we have leadership now at the very top of, of our government mm-hmm. is not even pretending to give a fuck. Like, right. do you know what I mean? Like when stuff like this, like when stuff, um, when, when people, um, were murdered before, you know, like George Floyd was, you'd at least have a, a president who would come out and pretend to care, right. Pretend that the nation needed to heal, Pre- pretend somewhat that, you know, have compassion and uh, empathize. And- yeah. And, Say I, all the right words. And, yeah, and you know, so, and, and yeah, and I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but no, no, like, I I think that that is one of the biggest differences between communities of color and people of color and and white people is like I don't know if y'all just weren't listening or paying attention, but like you know, it was Bill Clinton who put a hundred thousand like new police officers on the yeah. ground because he wanted law and order. You know, it was Barack Obama who I love and voted for. And I wish I could vote for again. I want to preface this statement by saying like, like I've had dreams where like Barack Obama's in the white house, yeah. but he also deported, you know, millions of people who look just like members of my family. Like I, I, I don't feel like it's like it, it's been as like, you know, Trump is something else. Cause it's, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, Mountain Dew code red with extra aspartame and caffeine, <laughs> but like, it's still Mountain Dew. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I'm 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 trying to lean into that, you know, yeah. uh, where white people not listening, and I think 
yes, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, and yeah. I think a lot of, you know, one of the things I have written in my notes to ask you about is this concept of um, performative allyship, right? Mm. So, you know, mm-hmm. when you have a president like Clinton who pushed through the st- three strikes and you're out legislation, yeah. signed off on that, that put more people of color in jail mm-hmm. than almost any other president in history, you know, gets up there and, you know, does the whole, I feel All your right. pain. Oh, you yeah, know? no. It, Clinton, it, and, and don't get me wrong, I yeah. come from a family who loved Bill Clinton. Like, yeah. my mom's side of the family loved Bill Clinton. Right. Grandpa loved Bill Clinton. Like, and he, Bill Clinton performed compassion very, very well. Mm-hmm. But he he also performed politics very, very well. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, there... And, and here's the thing, too. I mean, Bill Clinton also presided over the longest economic expansion in U.S. history and, like, left left the White House with one of the largest surpluses we've ever had. And, you know, the amount of business that, like, that, you know, his trade agreements brought to my hometown, go ahead, Bill. I'm good with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know. Yeah. But I think that, like, Perf- to, to take a step back like yeah. we do have a president now who is not performing for the 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 centrist audience anymore right. i mean he is not when he gets up and says this stuff when he shows up at places and you know holds a bible when he does all that he's not performing for the the center the the center white um you know he is he- right that doesn't doesn't and will never want the people of color in their community yeah so but i think there's a more interesting conversation around performative allyship on a on a micro level than a macro level yeah because Um, you know and I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of jabbering on. No, you're not. That's you're why not, you're here. You're not at all. <laughs> to jabber. Yeah. Right. I, I had a very, I had a very, very interesting interaction in our community um, just this last week. And that, that really brought home to me kind of what this idea of performative allyship can be when it's at its worst. Mm-hmm. So um, East Hampton had an event. It was sponsored by the mayor and the chief of police, which is already problematic, um, especially in in relation to to massive protest against, you know, government sanctioned police killings, because whether or not they're they're saying go out and kill these people, if we're not prosecuting, convicting and punishing these police officers who are doing these things, then we are condoning it. The, the assumed, um, assumed immunity is, 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 is a confirmation that what they're doing is okay. So, um, so it's already problematic when it's, when that's, who's bringing us our, our, our moment of solidarity. It was called like a vigil, a moment of solidarity, a protest at one point, which was very strange to me mm-hmm. to hear that language used when it was like 
from the city. Um, but then they chose to, what they had chose to do was to coordinate an eight and a half minute kneel, um, where the entire town would kneel in silence, um, to be in solidarity with, with George Floyd, the police and the mayor would kneel. And immediately that was when my rankles got up because it's like, okay, a just just the visual of of the police kneeling around George Floyd's death is is just it it's not okay. I mean, point blank, not okay. Like, yeah. I don't care if you're doing it out of solidarity. I've yeah, you know, I've seen all these images of police kneeling in the streets, and we're with you. And it's like, no, then then stand up, take your guns off. Yeah. It's, you stand there silently. Yeah, it's grotesque. Like, it's grotesquely yeah. ironic. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like when a clown dies. Um, <laughs> but no, but yeah, and and but then there was this this other element to it that that the, they had really not planned any further action. There was no legislative priorities. There were no you know changes in policy. There were no. There was nothing. I mean, it was just like we're all going to st- sit silently. And, and then we're going to go about our lives. And immediately my, my kind of rancor got up and I was like, no, this is not okay. Like, this is not, we, this is not all right. Um, this is not how we, a, a it's, it's preemptive tone policing. So like it, as there are these active protests happening all around our little town, by stepping in and saying, we're going to do this, that gives the pass for every, every white person who doesn't want to be uncomfortable to say, well, we already did a thing. Why do you need to march? We already did something. Mm -hmm. And it also, in, in my opinion, was kind of an empty gesture when you don't back it with action. It it really was. I, I ended up writing a letter to the mayor and, you know, getting on social media and kind of blasting out like, this is not okay. And, you know, there, there, we've made subsequent like organization efforts now that I feel like we have forward momentum going. Um, you know, the, the mayor has come out and agreed to a moratorium, an executive order moratorium against uh, militarization. Um, there's, there's some other things in the works. So, however, the day of, I went to, I was told by some other activist colleagues that there would be a, a group of people who would be coming out to to stand up and and basically say no, this is not okay. Um, the plan was to observe the moment of silence, to stand to be standing and observe the moment of silence, and then to say a few words. That, that would be a call to action afterwards. I arrived at. Um, at what I was told was the location. Um, I let her found out that it was across town. So I was there by myself. Um, I'd like, (laughs) I was still going to be annoying. Um, so I was there and a couple other folks who had kind of also got the same message ended up showing up and we went through this moment of silence and there was probably about 60 people there, give or take. And before it ended, I said, like, you know, this is not okay. Like, you know, this, what you were doing right now, um, before you stand up, I want you to stand up into a moment of action. Because what you're doing right now 
without action attached to it is an empty gesture and it's meaningless. And you should be aware that, you know, for the entire history of the United States, like we have seen empty gestures. Mm -hmm. So very short and sweet because I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be home. I'm trying to, I have have my children coming from Los Angeles, so I'm trying to stay away from people. So I I finished speaking and a gentleman walked up um, and I'm going to just say his name because I think the world should put this guy on blast for being a monster. His name is, um, and he is a local columnist and he was speaking, looking me in the eye from two feet away. He claims he was speaking to the gentleman who was standing next to me said, uh, well, I came for the vigil, but I'm leaving before the lecture. Hmm. And at that point I told the gentleman to, to kindly go F himself. Um, try not to cuss on your podcast. It's okay. You can can cuss. Okay. I I told him um, to go fuck himself. Um, uh, because that's what he deserved. He then claimed, well, I wasn't talking to you because that's, that's, what whiteness does it's it's funny how it, it never wants to talk to you unless it has something to say right. um <laughs> then he proceeded to walk two steps to my side look at me and say well it must be nice to be white middle class and privileged enough to stand here and say the things you're saying um yeah and at that point i kind of lost my shit because i'm like dude you were wrong on all three of those <laughs> like felt like luke skywalker like, right. oh, like yeah. everything you just said was wrong yeah um you know he said he said he said to me like i was like you're wrong on all three of those clans and he goes oh yeah right i'm like i come from farm workers dude mm-hmm. and he looked at me and he said oh f- oh fucking right boy um are you kidding yeah. oh my god no, no. Okay. Um, and then. Uh, a couple, a couple of the folks who know me came over and spoke to him and like said, actually, you know, eh, this not okay. And he said to them, "Well, you need to get your boy before I punch him in the head." The um, oh my yeah. god! I later found out that this individual um, considers themselves a progressive columnist who um, who writes about liberal issues in the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, Wow. I found this out, uh, and it goes back to the performative aspect of, of allyship, when a quote-unquote ally called me that night and said to me that I ruined the moment for the people who were there by being too bombastic and cussing in front of children, and that I really owed an apology. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a gentleman who solved the entire event, um, who was two feet away during the entire event, um, because he's on my side. And if I just had given him a chance, he would have shown me that. Uh, like, how do you? Yeah. Know? Well, I yelled at that guy for about 45 minutes yeah. Um, yeah. about, you know, how, what, like, how incredibly racist what he was saying was, how this whole situation was messed up, how, you know, this is not okay. You don't do this. Like, um, and 
how they were talking to the wrong person. And, and this person kept telling me, well, like, I wanted you to get your message across. I wanted you to get your, your message across like, like you did in this letter that you had sent to the mayor. Cause it was so eloquently oh stated. And I really feel like, you know, people could have been comfortable enough to hear that. And all I could think was like, this isn't about us. This isn't about us as people of color. Like it has, mm-hmm. this has nothing to do with us. Like I, like I could scream all day into the great pioneer Valley and never make an, a, a change because unless, unless this is about white comfort, it has nothing to do with us. Yeah. And, and in that regard, like, I don't really know what to think about the pioneer Valley because it feels like so much of of what I see and hear here about allyship is just making sure you say the right things. Right. And so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, I really don't know. It just, it feels as though it's become part of part of the conversation that's becoming dangerously close to surpassing the conversation. Um, you know, how can white people be seen to care? How can white people buy their way out of racism, which is my new favorite thing, like shop your way out of racism. Yeah. Um, I'm just, you know, I don't want to complain too loudly. I don't want to say it too loud. Cause like money up black owned businesses, but like you can't shop your way out of systemic racism. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. You know, you can't buy a racist gift card. Like right. it's, you know, go spend your money and, and do it. But like, don't think that supporting like going out and getting ribs one night or going out and getting like conisada one night or going out and getting like pupusas one night or going out to like have like curry is going to, is going to absolve you of 400 plus years of terrible. <laughs> right. Right. Like if you're not yeah. frequenting those places before all of this, like yeah. M- yeah. making that effort that now. now, like why would you, like, what is the point? Yep. And, and mm-hmm. I don't want to be the, the white person who continues to put the burden of the work on people of color by asking the question, what should white people do? Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to ask that question. So anyone listening to this <laughs> can, I'm not no, going to ask the question. Can hear, can, question. can hear your perspective yeah. on what are like, what are, what are meaningful action steps that um, I, white allies I can wish, take in a time like this? Uh, so I, I do wish I had like a better answer because yeah. I've been, I have been really struggling with this myself over the last, over the last week. Like mm-hmm. what, what do people do? Like what can people do? And, and I freely admit like, you know, I think it was last week or something. I got sick of seeing people saying like, I feel so helpless right now. And like, I'm not trying to be insulting, but like specifically like educated white women were like, I feel so helpless right now. I just read this article on Huffington post and I feel so (laughs) helpless. And I'm like, you feel, you have everything. You have all the things you feel helpless. Oh my God. You can pay my light bill. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, but like I so I put together a list of like here are some artists of color in the community that would love to, you know, love to do business with you. 
here's some like restaurants, here are organizations that are doing work. Like, how about you show up for them for a while? I was saying like, Oh, you know, how about you reach out to, to black and brown run community organizers and ask if you can pay for their zoom account. Like, because that literally gives them a tool. Like, Mm -hmm. but I'm struggling with, with like, what, am I just letting people like buy their way out of trouble or like, Mm -hmm. it's hard. It's really, it's really, really difficult. But like, what makes me hopeful is more, it feels like a lot more people are asking that question. Well, what do I do? Um, One of the things that I'm kind of coming to realize though, is how, so I look back to, to uh, my family moved to Artesia, California when I was five or six or something like um, from El Centro. Don't get me wrong. Like, we were still in El Centro every weekend because I come from a, a, a large brown family. And if I'm not there, like if you don't show up for Sunday dinner, you're screwed. <laughs> um, so like, we, even though we moved a couple like hours up the road, we were still there all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, my grandmother, I I've been calling her and she's like, when are you coming to see me? And I'm like, it's a <laughs> pandemic. I can't come there. And there are riots everywhere. And she's like, that's nice. Mijo, but you need to get here. And I'm like, <laughs> so like, that doesn't end. But like, yeah. um, like I was saying, we moved to Artesia, California, um, and we lived in Artesia. And Artesia for a long time had the um, the honor of being being labeled the most diverse spot on the planet per capita. It is a very small town. It's like seven square miles or something. It's very small. Um, but more languages were spoken in this area than anywhere else on the planet. There were a, a greater mix of different groups um, than anywhere else on the planet. It's still, you go there. And although the demographics have shifted a little, it didn't shift in the, the direction that I think anyone was prepared for, or, or I don't mean prepared in a bad way, but like, um, it's, there's a huge Indian and Pakistani population now. Um, but like, I, I bring, I say all this because growing up in that kind of diversity, I feel very strange about talking about how do we diversify communities? Because the truth is the only way that we really kind of get through this stuff is by more of us mixing together and more in, in, in larger numbers. Um, and it sounds so like ridiculously simple to say that, like, mm-hmm. Hey, you want diversity? You need more Brown people, <laughs> but like, you know, you want to solve racism, have like half of the people, you know, not look like you. Um, but I think there's something to that. Like I, it's strange to say, but unpacking these problems is is as a community-wide issue we need better housing stock we need low cost or no cost loans that encourage people of color to buy property in our communities we need cultural centers that like people of color can can come and engage in in their cultural groups um because i'll tell you this like one of the things that i find really frustrating in around here is Folks, folks talking about Black Lives Matter, 
But when they engage black culture from black people, they freak the geek out. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like I and I, I, I'm going to get a little hood because I was born and raised in the hood. But like, I can hear white buttholes pucker from a block away when when they see black people and brown people being black and brown people. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because it's like, oh, black lives as the movement matter, black culture it's not welcome here. And so like, you know, how do we like facilitate that and how do we create that? And, and, and not just like black, black and Brown culture as a moment of expression, which I, I will preface by saying attack bear press has, has been about that. Like we've been about like, come and try to see this moment of expression and hopefully you can engage it. But anymore, it's like, well, I, I miss my people. I miss, I miss talking to people and having it be understood because they speak my code. Right. Like, and how do we get that here without it being here is, is tough. I don't know. Like, you know, all I know is that like the barriers that are put up to it have to go away. Right. I, over the last like week, I've been talking to so many black and Brown, like, colleagues who have lost jobs in this community for being too brown or being too black on the job like who like it's all they never say that's what it is but it's what like mm-hmm. it's what it is yeah like right the code and i don't know language of yeah. yeah 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 exactly so yeah. i don't know i mean i guess it's recognizing those moments when you feel uncomfortable like and like taking a second to breathe that in and go like, what am what's happening here? Why am I uncomfortable here? Why like what like where's this from? Right. Like yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. it has to boil down to education. Right. And yeah. And, and you know, I think one of the challenges to that, right, is it um, it invokes this um, this sense of fragility in white yeah. people right white having ability. to yeah. ha- having to take that moment and breathe it in right and yeah. you know right and, and confront yourself about why you're feeling uncomfortable or why right. you don't particularly you know like what's happening in front of you right like you said yeah. jason right like you know like surround yourselves with more people of color it sounds so simple but like when you live in a community that's 87 percent white mm-hmm. you know how do you do that and i feel and then, and then you know i think sawtooth and i this week were like well, well why do we live here you know and i think back to the decision points that led us to live in mm-hmm. the town that we live in it's like you know they were so innocuous they were like proximity to the pike you know like the fact yeah. that we wanted to be in the valley like we weren't thinking about you know, that we, we wanted a diverse community that wasn't but, part of our Yeah, but mm-hmm. also, like, one, one of the narratives we latched on to was, you know, the great school systems here. School system. And, like, yeah. I, and I think back to that. Is that, is that really, you know, uh, some kind of subconscious coding for, you know, schools oh, that aren't full of black and brown people? Right. Right. And 100%. Yeah. And, and well, like, and, and yeah, please go. Sorry, go ahead. Nope, no, no, no go ahead. I was going to say, and the, the unfortunate reality is that so many black and brown schools are underfunded and underperforming 
And so like, it becomes both of those things. Like it becomes, you know, we call schools bad and then don't think about like them being filled with black and brown kids. And we also make the assumption that every school that's bad is filled with black and brown kids. And so you don't even consciously have to think about it to when you say, Oh, my kid goes to a good school. Like, mm-hmm. y- like the thought of, are there enough black and brown students here probably never crosses your mind. And like, I hate to say, like, I hate to be like this, but like, it never crosses your mind because you, you don't even need to think about it. Like, right. you know, the answer, right. Like, we yeah. all know, like, yeah. yeah. And so hundred percent, like, you yeah. know, so it's, yeah. it's tough. And yeah. I mean, like, I, I yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting too, cause there's this other, um, aspect of it right this like this identity and tribalism and feeling comfortable Mm -hmm. among your own kind quote unquote you know and I think about when um you know I'm from New Jersey I'm from a pretty Mm -hmm. Jewish area I'm Jewish right you know like I I speak about this because my experience of being othered you know and my experiences with anti-semitism um although I have white skin you know, these are things that I find true in my life, you know, but when yep. we said to my parents, we're going to live in Western Massachusetts, they were like, there's no Jews there, you know, and it was like, well, <laughs> there are, you know, and it's this idea that like, you have to go to a place where there aren't, mm-hmm. maybe to, you know, sort of, you know, expose those people to another reality of life, right, yep. you know? But yeah, I, I mean, what what I want to say, though, right, and I think it goes to Jason's point about, you know, um, needing to be around other people who are different, right? Because right. I think mm-hmm. tribes form around communities, right? right? And communities yeah. can be composed All of different, yeah. almost mm-hmm. anyone. Yeah. And I'm thinking... Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about a book um, written by Sebastian Younger. I mentioned this a few episodes, episodes ago um, called Tribe. And mm-hmm. it's about his experience with um, sense of tribalism and belonging when he was embedded with a military unit. Um, he spent mm-hmm. like a year in Afghanistan. Um, that, And I understand that's a whole other kettle of fish that we don't have to <laughs> dig into. into. <laughs> but um, his, I think his point was there were these people he never met before um, being before living with them day in and day out and forming community with them. And by the end of his year with them, you know, like he felt like they were family right. and, and they yeah. were a very diverse group of um, people. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but I, I, you know, anyways, so. <laughs> no, no, I think that's, I think that's an excellent, excellent point. Like I look back to my childhood in Artesia and I grew up with, I, I was very lucky. I've, I've always been kind of an odd kid. Um, I was very, very lucky that there was a huge collection of, of young, young people who grew up on my street on, on Ibex street in Artesia. Um, we were 
as a diverse reflection of the diverse community we lived in. Um, There was really like, you know, all colors of the rainbow. Um, I felt closer to them and, and subsequently when leaving that environment to go to different environments, couldn't understand racial divides in a, in a way that made a lot of sense to me. Um, because I didn't get it. Like I didn't get how, you know, members of my family could, could get down on like Chinese people or Korean people in particular when my best friend was Korean Mm -hmm. and, you know, and and so it, it happens that form of like, and, and don't get me wrong, like, you know, racism and racial discrimination and racial prejudice and, shouldn't say racism, racial prejudice and racial discrimination isn't limited to white people. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally, it's totally not like, you know, um, in fact, like one of the, the long, you know, fallouts from the, the LA riots was the divisions that were created between the Korean community and the black community in Los Angeles County. Um, you know, it, it, what happened actually during those three days of rioting, um, you know, affected those two racial groups and those two community groups for decades afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm saying is, I kind of lost my train of thought. That's okay. I mean, I think Without, about, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, yeah, no, no. So you, you please. No, I was just going to say, like, you know, we have a friend, she's from South India, and, mm-hmm. you know, she married a lighter skinned man from North India. And, mm-hmm. Her mother-in-law, it was a racist, like, yeah. felt, you know, mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm, now I'm losing the exact no, I, wording, I mean, she, but, like, you she know, was, she was she was a target and a victim of racism oh, yeah. within India. So it's, like, between, you know, their own culture. And, and within the, her own yeah. family, right? Right, her own mm-hmm. family, the levels of darkness within your on your skin tone, which is, oh, it's so yeah. absurd. <laughs> Sorry, it, 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 it's so crazy. mad. But I think for me, what I've been thinking about lately is, okay, well, when are we talking, when are we talking bias, prejudice, discrimination, and when are, and where are we talking about systemic racism? Because like, those are very different things. And for me, at least more and more, I'm, I'm coming to this idea that like, we're all racist, Every, every single American, we're all racist because we live in a system of systemic racism. We live right. in systemic racism. So that is our system for dealing with race. And in the same way that even if you hate money and you don't want to be a capitalist, you, as long as you were here and operating in this system, that is your default. You, you can't escape it while being inside of it. And so the idea of like, you know, engaging that as like our starting point. Cause it's funny you talk uh, over the course of my life and my career, I've, I've had some really interesting interactions. Um, you know, there used to be a place called Hayden Lake, Idaho in Washington state. And I had lived in Washington for a while as a young adult and Hayden, Hayden Lake was this huge neo-Nazi compound. It was like the four winds compound 
Um, and then four winds was this weird neo-Nazi movement mm-hmm. that, that propped up. Um, and there were kids who were being raised up there. I mean, it was there for years, um, who lived and died, never left Hayden Lake. And I remember I used to be, be like friends with a bunch of like, you know, you know, like, well, I, I was a sharp for a while, which is, um, skinheads against racial prejudice, um, in the punk rock world. Um, and so like, it was like going to the haunted house. You would drive up as close to Hayden Lake as you could get, tell the Nazis to go fuck themselves mm-hmm. and then like get scared and drive away. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, yeah, because there were guys with AK 47s at a gate and you're right. like, Oh, we made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so Hayden Lake ended up dissolving. Um, and it ended up dissolving for, for stupid, you know, reasons, because when you put like uneducated people in charge of things, they like break them mm-hmm. and like, in no way, shape or form am I suggesting that more educated people should become white supremacists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that like, you know, it, 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 when you look at this, that structure where it's like a bunch of folks who are like, I got a fourth grade education. Well, I got a sixth grade, so I'm in charge. Like, this isn't going to last forever. But occasionally these kids would wash up in the punk rock scene. And, you know, I'd talk to them, and it was so sad because they were, like, lost. Like, some of them were kids who were raised that, like, their whole life there and who were just like, I didn't know anything else. Mm -hmm. Like, I was taught, like, hate from a very young age. Then you'd meet other kids who were like, you know, I went there because I had run away from home and I was told that I would be accepted there. And so you realize like, oh my God, these are just people. Um, but what was weird was when they would start talking about like their, their prejudice and their, like their biases and they'd be like, well, I'm not a racist. And it's like, no, you're you're clearly a racist. <laughs> like yeah. you are clear. Like you you have like you lived in a racist like community. Like that was like the the main part of where you grew up was. Hey, are you a racist? Yeah, me too. Like so, how can you sit here and be like I'm not a racist? <laughs> and, and this kind of moment of being like, wow, because we view like racism as being this the ultimate like taboo in our society when ironically all of us are because it's systemic and we can't escape it so let's just let's let's put this aside and say like okay i'm going to start from this point where i i have been i i live and i and i've been brought up and i have to engage a racist system so therefore i am also racist where are my biases where are my prejudices where do I discriminate? How do I unpack them? Where are the boundaries of, of this lie? How can I be anti-racist? Um, I don't know if I can escape it because the entire system is this way, but right. how can I be anti-racist to break it down? Like, you know, yeah. I that's just more and more where I'm heading because it feels like there needs that truth and reconciliation. Yeah, and I And I think that's maybe where you know, representation and inclusion at the governmental mm-hmm. level yeah. is really yeah. important. You know, supporting um, campaigns of people of color who are running for Congress, yeah. who are running for local boards. Like, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, that's, I mean, that's how we're going to change, I think, the yeah. systemic racism is by, you know, um, getting enough people, um into elected office to help 
change some of our laws and systems in, in, in a direction that's more equitable and affords more opportunity for everybody, levels the, you know, the playing field. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah. That's, no, I agree. Yeah. Like, I, I agree. For right now, I mean, getting those people to come to the Pioneer Valley, getting, getting you know, those people, I, by that I mean people of color, to come to the Pioneer Valley, you know, how do we do that? How do we activate this space so that right. it is attractive? Like, and mm-hmm. it's complicated because it does take, like, the 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 larger like regional work of actually like you know trying to make sure that we break down some of these long-standing you know rules regulations and you know laws that keep people from wanting to come here which you know for the most part i feel like we (laughs) there's not a there's not a lot of like you know that stuff left around but also to like provide the opportunity and recognizing that the opportunity maybe isn't for everyone. It's, it's funny that like, I see these things that we roll out at least on the municipal and like the state level. And it's like, well, you know, we want to provide housing grants for, for everyone's down payment. And then, you know, you dig through like the data and it's like, well, 90% of them were taken by white people. Like, Mm -hmm that like maybe it's time we say that like to be to be just we can't always be equitable like you know and just be okay with that for a little while and sit with that for a little while and say that like you know justice equality maybe isn't the thing but justice is and so you know I don't know because then I talk to communities of color and people of color like myself and they're like, I, you know, you don't have to tear down the system. You just have to quit shooting us in the street and make sure I have a grocery store. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, I think making a society that's safer for people of color is just one step. Right. And, you know, and maybe then that will, you know, make people feel more um, willing to be involved, you know, yeah. in, in government. And, right. you know, if you feel, yeah. you know, if you feel like you can, you can safely participate in your community. Right. That's it. But that's just one piece. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And maybe, and maybe that's the step we're at. I mean, maybe that's the step that we're like, if we take a deep breath and we honestly look at it, maybe that is the step we're at that, you know, we want we wanted so much to pretend that the politics of the 1950s and 60s don't exist, but maybe they still do. Maybe they maybe it is still Selma, Alabama, like that. But you yeah. know, I mean, yeah. And one of the I thing- don't want di- yeah. to, yeah. Sorry, I was just saying one of the things I grapple with, right, is like one of one of the things that unleveled the playing field, right, was. Uh, World War Two, right? Um, mm-hmm. we, we still had segregation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the United States went out and destroyed most of the world, right? Which allowed white people in the United States to reap the economic benefits of mm-hmm. rebuilding the world, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and, and black Americans and people of color couldn't really participate in that. Yeah. Um, economic um boom that happened right after world war ii and 
you know, the, the white middle class exploded, right? Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that, you know, left, su- le- left such an economic and social disparity. And we still have not reckoned with that. And like, yeah. and I think globally, the rest of the world is like catching up to the United States. And we're now seeing mm-hmm. the myth of American exceptionalism being mm-hmm. challenged. And to some degree, yeah. white American exceptionalism right. as you know, related to that. And yeah, but know, we want to make America great again. Oh, stop. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, here's the, yeah, go here, ahead. Jason. Here's a, no, here's just, a, it's a funny thing. Yeah. Because like, and, and I know that other people of color feel the same way where, so when I used to go into a grocery uh, or I'm going to say this part. So yeah. Going into a gas station in my hometown with my grandmother. Inevitably, in my hometown, everybody, you start most conversations in Spanish because a majority of people speak Spanish because Mexico is just right over there. Um, And so, and especially people, you know, most of the time what happens is they'll say a few words in Spanish. You may answer back in Spanish, but then quickly switch to English um, if you're more comfortable as an English speaker. Um, especially with my grandmother, who was very dark skinned, like, um, immediately the, the difference between like a, a very clear, clearly Anglo person walking in most of the time, you know, they may get like, uh, hola, como esta, like, but it would, it would quickly divert to English. With my grandma, there was always the, the move to speak Spanish first and to keep speaking Spanish, even if she responded in English. And her response always, like, I don't know how many times I heard it growing up, was she would stop them and say, excuse me, I can speak Spanish, but I speak English because I am an American. Mm. And... I don't know how many times growing up I heard her do this to people to like have this check on people and this idea that her American identity was very important to her. Mm-hmm. And the idea of being an American was very important to her in part because it is the immigrant mindset like you know we didn't come all the way over here to like you know right. we we came here to be here so mm-hmm. but, but there was also this like this general feeling of like you know i uh, and and don't get me wrong some of it was the privilege of that our family had i mean the american dream did pretty freaking well for us like all of my siblings are are college educated or higher actually i think all of them are now all of them hold um at very least graduate degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my cousins are in the same boat. Um, m- most of us are homeowners. Like, you know, it's they're like yeah. the American dream did very well for us. And so there is this desire to defend it in some regards. And I have found myself, I had a, a, a conversation with a gentleman conversations, a nice way of me saying I yelled. Um, <laughs> Well, I had a conversation with a gentleman who had been saying some kind of ridiculous things about punch a Nazi, punch a Nazi, and you got to punch a Nazi. And yeah, and I kind of was like, can we please stop with the punch Nazi rhetoric? A, these are not Nazis. These are 
white U.S. U.S. born white supremacists. Like, and in fact, if you look at history, they they inspired the Nazis. So let's take some responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, B, like, I was like, this is, th- and this was uh, before this protest start. These protests started when Aftifa was just becoming a thing out in the like that was being you that was weapon that was being weaponized. Um, and I was like, can you please stop with that talk? Because what's going to happen is that will be the justification for violence against my community. And I was like, you know, I don't appreciate it. I find it dangerous. And he said to me, like, look, I don't believe in the American exceptionalism. And my first reaction to the guy was really because you guys killed a lot of us to get it. So why am I having to defend it? Mm -hmm. And you can just shit on it. (laughs) And, and and like i don't i still to this moment don't know why that was my first reaction like it was like somebody making fun of your mommy but if you have a bad relationship with them it's like that's still my mommy yeah <laughs> so i don't know but yeah it's yeah i i totally agree with you like i i think the rest of the world is starting to catch up to that like rapid economic boom and like, you know, we're so connected now and seeing so many different cultures and aspects, but like, but when you bring it home to your house, are, are you connected to it or are you consuming it? Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Kind of uh, took like five different directions there. <laughs> no, no, that was great. Um, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk a little yeah. bit about um, the role of art and how art can potentially play a role in culture change, policy change, and um, mm-hmm. as, as a way of challenging people's perceptions and mm-hmm. beliefs. And I didn't know if yep. you wanted to talk at all about about that, Jason. Well, I think that, um, personally, I believe all art's an argument. Like... It is either an argument for change, an argument to express someone's knowledge and ability. It is an argument to for the status quo. It's all it's all rhetoric. Like it it just depends on what it's saying. And so in that regard, like any act of any act of art or becomes an act of engagement with with something with some question with with some kind of like larger issue um right now i think it's it's more valuable than ever in a expressing kind of the the moment and to give us to give us something that we can can move to or move away from, you know, I, I've been doing, I've been doing at least in my own private paintings or like the work I've, I've been putting out trying to engage at least one, one question of the moment, which is normally not something I do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't have a tendency to like try to, to stay kind of on on what's going on now a lot more of my work at least my my 
physical visual arts work is is trying to engage other aspects, other past aspects, um, colonization, decolonization, um, uh, history, trying to kind of explore those moments and then tie them to now, but it need, neither here nor there. What, I, what I'm trying to say is it's just, it's, for me, it's becoming a way to, to solidify themes that can be boiled down to actions. Um, We've been doing, or like I said, we'd been working with with Amara Brown down in New Haven, who took the idea of art as being a way to to galvanize and to direct support, mm-hmm. you know, through her own work, um, but also through the Bailout Gallery, um, you know, that way of saying, okay, well, let's, you know, let's really kind of move people in a direction of of helping actual on the ground work, um, by, by providing them an outlet, providing them a place where they can go and give, but also engage with a variety of artists, with artists of color, with artists, um, you know, who maybe have different gender expressions who, you know, and so in that way worked on kind of two nice levels. Um, you know, but it's, it's tough, like, because I always worry that, so I had a conversation this morning with a um, with an art curator who will go unnamed. Um, this is not a call out on this individual at all. Like we ended up having a very nice conversation that I think was exceedingly productive, and I enjoyed every single minute of it. But they had said to me, "Hey, you know, you're, you're connected with a lot of black and brown artists. We'd like to do more work with black and brown artists." And I was like, "Okay, that's great." Like, and I had looked at like their lineup that they had planned for the next year Mm -hmm. after reopening and was like, okay, well, you know, all of these are white women of various ages and gender expressions. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Um, and I was like, so great. What are we going to do with black and brown art? Like when, like when are you thinking, cause you have a lineup, yeah. Like, do you want to like maybe think about pairing some people together? Like, can we make space around a specific time? And she was like, well, no, I, I don't, I was thinking more of like 22, 23, um, you know, because I don't want to like, we already have a lineup and I don't want to inconvenience any of these artists. And mm. I was like, okay, so what you're asking me for is to find you some token black people that you can you can work with and maybe show off in a time that best works for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so you run we run this risk of like engaging in that sort of like, I just want to be on trend and be able to announce something. Yeah. And, you know, I don't really care what it is or when it is. Like, you know, Right. I don't know. I mean, and for me, it also brought home this kind of larger issue amongst art, especially in Massachusetts, where it's like, this is the domain of white women. Um, <laughs> and it, white women define what art is in our community. And I don't know. Donna Estabrooks. <laughs> have, you, have you ever eaten a Judy's in Amherst? 
No, I haven't. Oh, oh. God, sorry. There, there's an artist there um, whose work is all over everything, and I, I personally don't enjoy it, but <laughs> I, I believe she is a white woman. She is a white woman. Yes, Donna Estabrook. Uh, other people may love it, but I don't. Anyways, sorry. Yeah. That was yeah. a va- that I was mean, a valley a valley joke. No, no, no worries. Um, you know, and for me, like it, it's funny. Like you know, just in in the art world, there's a lot of work left to do, and I and I and especially for our communities, like communities of color, like you know, it's not just supporting when you support an artist of color you are not just supporting that individual. You are supporting the idea that it is a valuable and viable employment opportunity for our community and our culture. It is, it's tough to want to be an artist and come from a community of color. It's, mm-hmm. we're not all always that supportive of the idea, yeah. or at least my family is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it wasn't until I started selling paintings that they were like, okay, maybe you can do this. <laughs> <Yes>. so, <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you connect so, with the, um, the make it Springfield group uh yeah i've I've had some i've had some talks with them like you know of springfield and and, then you know tiana (laughs) tiana oh yeah i know tiana from made ethnic in fact tiana and i um we're going to be in the same building in it tiana tiana is connected through we all connected around david shear and our building and Mm -hmm. you know they're tiana's Tiana's good, good people, and mm-hmm. I think we need like 15 more Tianas in her crew mm-hmm. out there doing stuff. And if you, I'll, I'll say this: like, if you're like, "Oh, I'm inspired by this. I want to support Attack Bear Press." Stop. Go look at Made Ethnic and mm-hmm. support them because they have things going on right now that yeah. could use support. Attack Bear Press. We just kind of flaunts along. We'll be all right. Tiana could use support right now because because they can so yeah. go go support tiana like yeah. um yeah, yeah she's, um she's, they're awesome peeps yeah they're 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 doing really good stuff and like you know they have the studios up and and running mm-hmm. in west springfield yep. and yeah, we they, took a tour you know, of that that's where i wanted yep. you to have a podcast studio. oh yeah i remember seeing that it's <laughs> you know i i would have loved to just it logistically it's so much more comfortable to do this from our office yeah yeah so i built our little studio in here (laughs) yeah yeah and and i've been based on a personal experience you know i've been been thinking about art as um provocation right and to raise Mm -hmm. to, to to get people to question right i yeah i created a piece last week um uh it's basically a a a photoshopped image of Donald Trump sitting in a bunker, um, staring at a black lives matter poster. Yeah. And I called it a very tiny introspection. Right. Um, and I posted it on our town community forum, Belcher town community forum. And I received very little support and was overwhelmingly attacked. Um, by the people in the, in the community forum mm-hmm. for having posted it, it was really it was a really interesting experience. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, and by um, the way, I, I saw the piece and I really liked it. Oh, thank you. Um, 
and and I'm only I'm I'm raising it more as um you know I I do I'm glad I did it because I I think maybe it got some people to think and made some people uncomfortable mm-hmm. and my you know my goal wasn't to troll anybody it was really to try to get people to um you know be challenged right, right. That's the same as most political cartoons, or I know it wasn't a cartoon, but yeah. Anyways, that concept of like. So and and I'm just thinking. I'm thinking about art as a as a springboard for potentially getting people to maybe challenge their own ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and God, I wish I could remember the name of the book. It was something sensationalism. Um, that it's a, it'll come to me like 20 minutes after we're done but it it's a philosophical work um by uh, a french philosopher and basically the idea is that we live in a it because of advertisement because of uh, mass media like we live in an era in which sensationalism is the is the lexicon and that the only way for art to actually be meaningful is to be provocative mm-hmm. is to to it is less even a, he he goes into this this part of it saying like it's even less about like the content of what you do or how you do it so much as the amount of provocation that you elicit mm. so you know a, a banner over like a part of a uh of a of a bill a freeway billboard that changes like the freeway billboard from saying like, you know, it, it, free, free meals with gas to kids with gas eat free. Like the mm-hmm. action like of, of the provocation is what is important because that is what breaks through all of this other stuff. So like, and I think like here in the Valley, like acts of provocational art are, are, are necessary now um, because they make people so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying we all turn into a bunch of trolls because that's not the same thing. Yeah. Like when I first got here, I made the mistake of um, I say mistake be, because it was three days of terrible. Um, I created this kind of um, installation thing. Um, I, that was, uh, it was after back home, they had decided to stop burying, um, undocumented, um, unidentified individuals and they started cremating them and throwing them in the San Diego Bay. I was mad about it. And so I made this thing that was, um, you know, it was two paintings, one with a cutout in it. And then the cutout itself were painted and collaged. I put them on the bike path in East Hampton. Um, and then posted it on the East Hampton, um, like Facebook page, which if you ever want to see what human garbage looks like, <laughs> just hang out on the East Hampton Facebook page. You'll see it. It's, yeah, I've heard uh, it's pretty terrible. It's very, yeah. uh, akin, if not surpasses our town <laughs> forum. Yeah, yeah. You guys, I like, I, I, I watch your guys' forum because like, I, I think I like Belchertown. I'm not like, it makes me smile in some, in some weird ways, but your guys' community forum is like, you have the same kind of like gross that pops up, but Mm -hmm. like, it feels like they're like, no, I'm going to be gross about these three things. And then like with the East Hampton Facebook page, it's like, I'm going to be gross about all the things. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but for three days, this minor act of provocation mm-hmm. that was passive and like it, it, it was one of the nicer pieces I had done to look at because most of my work isn't, isn't designed to be pleasant to observe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually designed to be very like visually jarring and like, and so, but neither here nor there, like, Oh my God, you would, you would think that I stomped a bunny. Like it was, <laughs> uh, I mean, just yeah. this, this like complete like discomfort and like, I don't want to, and, but what was strange was two years later, the same people, when we started caging people at the border, we're like, this is terrible. I can't right. believe we're doing this. Yeah. And the moment of being able to come back and say like, actually, excuse me, remember when I did this thing over there and you told me to go back to Mexico? Yeah. Like, let's talk. And so I think acts of provocation right now, as long as they're followed up with education, are are, are, are 100% valid. It's, and I would love to see more of them out of the white community. <laughs> it's so interesting you say that because when I was doing my little walk run tonight mm-hmm. i was thinking about i should i should host a discussion se- session around my piece of art yeah how would you do that? Uh, I, prob- a great idea. I probably would get shot i don't know how i Wait. would do it <laughs> see you're making a judgment <laughs> yeah i know that's your bias i know I ag- about the simple con- country folk that live <laughs> i acknowledge <laughs> i acknowledge my bias <laughs> Oh my god! I can't. I cannot believe we're already at an hour and a half. Oh um, my gosh. So you know, I want to if if you're okay with it, Jason, transition us to a little bit lighter fare yes. as we close out yes. the show. We um, every show we kind of like to like briefly talk about what we're doing just to entertain ourselves. So you know, it's music, TV, yes. you know, movies. So we'll throw it over to you. Anything you want to mention or recommend to people? Oh. So um, I've got to get. I've got to give a huge shout out to um, Bex and Kay here in East Hampton because when all of this started, I discovered that Doctor Who is on HBO Max now, mm-hmm. um, and I love Doctor Who. My kids love Doctor Who, and so I had made some like joke online about how like, well, I guess my kids aren't going to college. Because I'm getting HBO Max. <laughs> yeah, um, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, and um, Bex like stepped up and sent me like a Venmo, and was like, "Your kids, you deserve good TV, and your kids deserve to go to college." And I was like, "Oh, it's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me as an activist." Um, so I've, I've been watching basically nothing but HBO Max because it, it's a deep rabbit hole to go down. Um, I've started Doom Patrol on the dc hub right now mm-hmm. uh which is based on the the dc comic dune patrol that was initially written by grant morrison and then picked up by um what's his name the guy from uh, my chemical romance is right in it right now um lots of fun has brendan fraser in it um, oh really maybe we should yeah, watch that has, yeah it's 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 not great but it's not bad yeah. um i also like i'm gonna i have like so I started watching this thing on Netflix and I just found it on Netflix. It was like, here, you like crappy things. You'll like this crappy <laughs> thing. And it's called Baki. And it's it's Baki? this Yeah, it's it's a it's an anime. Uh-huh. It's a serialized anime that's based on a manga uh, a manga out of Japan. Um 
it is the stupidest thing I've ever, I, I think I have ever watched. And it's about a teenager who wants to become like the king of fighters and like, <laughs> and watching it in, I, I, I'm enamored with it because it's just lights and colors. I mean, it's just like, oh, loud things happening fast. <laughs> and, oh, we have Muhammad Ali Jr. And it's like, I didn't know he was a person. And, but there's also like this sweet undertone of homoeroticism that like, like there's a lot of big sweaty men's doing doing really big sweaty men thing that I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm watching that for this. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I hope these two kiss. Um, and like, but that's been my other thing, and I can't stop watching it, and I feel bad every time I do. Not because of the homoeroticism, not at all. Like I don't <laughs> like. like that's about its only redeeming factor just because it's so dumb. It's so dumb. It's literally, it's just like, it's brain candy. It's brain candy. And that's okay. Yeah. And it's not even good brain candy though, because it is just violence. It's just like, that's brain candy for somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Brain candy for me, apparently. So those two things, those two things. Uh, Violent homoeroticism. You got me. I'm going to check it out. (laughs) for sure uh, right yeah no no Watch one should question yeah no one should no one should question you know why they like something so much it's yeah, just you know just that's like what it. you like you know yeah so the thing i've been into stomping jen i mentioned yes. this to you um, what are you this podcast i found oh, that yes. is a chapter by chapter review of stephen king's the stand Ooh. and the woman who does it has a really great way of kind of summarizing the chapters and mm-hmm. then weaving them all together from episode to episode so i wanted to give that a plug it's called the circle opens and you could find that on all of the the podcast places the places yeah the um, pod the pod places yeah but it's it's great and if you love stephen king and you love the stand which i do it's probably my favorite mm. stephen king novel mm-hmm. definitely Agreed. worth definitely worth listening to mm-hmm the circle opens. So that's what I wanted to talk about. That's the thing I'm most into these days. Mm-hmm. Um, also, we watched Uncut Gems the yes. other night, the Adam Sandler Ooh, movie. Have you seen that, I've Jason? Been to see, I want to, I've been wanting to watch it. You want to say anything like, about it, Stomping Jen? Uh, not if Jason's going to watch it. Okay. Yeah, just a highly, re- highly recommended. It. it was great. It was captivating, too. Yeah. Um, it's like over two hours, but it flies by. Like, and... It's just Adam Sandler is fantastic in it. Mm-hmm. Um, probably his best performance, mm-hmm. I think, that he's ever done. What else has he been in? Besides all the like uh, cheesy 90s stuff. He was in a movie called Punch Drunk Love that's yeah. really good. Um, is it better than Punch Drunk Love? Yes. Because I really liked Punch Drunk Love. It's, it, it's different. Um, okay. The feel yeah. of it is like surreal yeah and hyper like you feel like you're coked up or something and one of the things they did is they cast a bunch of non-actors in all of these roles and it has Mm. this like it's this like this feeling of authenticity like sometimes you feel like you're watching a documentary sometimes you feel like you're watching a movie like it and like um stomping jen said it has this like energy to it that just propels it forward until it's until it's ending yeah. It's great. I can't recommend it enough. 
So yeah, you know, I, I, I've been wanting to watch it. And my, my grandfather, Alakon, who was also the mayor was a jeweler. That was his profession. And oh. so like, yeah, I, I'm, that was enough for me to be like, I'm going to watch, I'm gonna watch Billy Madison. <laughs> like doing jewelry <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Stomping Jen. What if that was at it? Uh, watch. I watched that Jeffrey Epstein. I know I fell asleep. Netflix documentary. I was really into the first episode, and then which I, I you know what? I don't even know if I want to recommend it because there's like nothing good comes out of it. Yeah. Except you learn that Jeffrey Epstein was a scumbag and a creep, and his money allowed him to be a scumbag and a creep. Yeah. And it just I felt dirty watching it, and I yeah. didn't like it. Yeah. It's funny, like the I I am good not watching anything right now that that basically shows how money makes people like get away with being terrible. We tried watching one episode of secession mm-hmm. and the HBO show. And I was like, mm-hmm. I can't do this right now. Yeah. Like I, I can't, I like, I want to eat all of these people and mm-hmm. like, yeah. like take their wealth and redistribute amongst the people. And yeah. like, then I'm like, Whoa, yeah. how'd I get out here? where did this pitchfork come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we enjoyed the show, but like it, they are all horrible people. people. And I think you're right. You like have to be in a mindset where you yeah. can like some, you know, tolerate that. Yeah. How many times? Oh, don't get I, me wrong. How many times did I turn to you during that show and just be like, I don't understand. <laughs> like it was yeah. just preposterous. Like yeah. the wealth and like the yeah. Ugh. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I enjoyed billions like for the same reasons that right now I know I couldn't watch it. Like, yeah. you know, so yeah. Yeah. All right. We're at an hour and 36 minutes. I think we're oh all still exhausted. We were all tired when we started this thing. So, um, Oh, I'm going to bed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's not much left to say other than to say thank you to yeah. Jason Montgomery from attack. Bear yeah, thank you Press. for having me here. Um, and talking to us. Um, always, we re- always a joy. We really appreciate well, no, it. I really appreciate being on. It's it's a joy. Like it really like the both times now that I've done this podcast, I actually I just really enjoy talking to you too. Yeah. Uh, likewise. Right. Well, so we'll have yeah. we'll have you back again. Yep. Um, oh, nice. And um, talk about farm labor. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Maybe I'll I'll step off that one. I've got I've got two and a half hours locked and loaded about how the Becerro program didn't do the farm labor pro, the 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 farm unionization efforts any help. So like I'm just ready. All right. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, that was like Greek to saw to. Saw Maybe you need to read a book before you talk to Jason I'm, about that. Might have to start drinking again oh, before no. we do that particular episode. But oh, I'm I'm down for it. All right. When I hit, when I hit, when I hit the, um, when I hit the music, then you know, feel free to hang up, Jason. And um, right. thanks we'll again. Talk to you soon. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank All right. You. Um, to everybody else out there, um, thank you for listening. Uh, we love you. Our our downloads have been up actually. Oh, they have. Oh, so nice. thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, tell a friend if you're enjoying our conversations. Wear a mask. Wear a mask um, <laughs> if you can. Yep. Um, other than that, I have nothing else to say, but um, we love you and bye now. Bye now.
knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity, and that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed 